Welcome to School of Movies, Wakanda Forever. Guests this time around are a man who has been on the Marvel episode since day one, Jerome McIntosh. Good day, sir. Another longtime friend of the show who was on our Black Panther episode back in 2018, Akila Hope. Hello. A regular voice at the School of Movies, an actress who would have been invited on anyway, but she was actually in the film, Maya Suris. Hello there the host, editor, and producer of the Through the Wind Door podcast on the New Century Multiverse, Greg Downing. Excuse me while I defiantly eat a carrot. (laughs) And daily voice on the School of Movies Discord, as well as curator of the New Century Multiverse's extensive TV Tropes pages, Mr. Chris Finnick. Hey, that's me. This is a film I have been dreading talking about there was no way i could ever be prepared and truth be told i am not and i could not be chadwick boseman the black panther died of cancer on august 28th 2020 it was already a horrendous year following four horrendous years of loss and fear and this particular death hurt on so many levels Wakanda and the Black Panther side of Marvel felt like a beautiful, blossoming, emerging, techno-organic flower being revealed to the real world, just as they are in the fictional. Pulled from science fiction comic pages and presenting Afrofuturism as the shining purple beacon. Even pasty white dudes like myself felt like we were part of a new movement, and I relished showing this respect and adulation for something so alive and so wonderful. And then a single death at a time absolutely saturated in death changed that feeling of building to one of destruction and ruin. 
we collectively as an audience did not know he was sick. Ryan Coogler, his director, was co-writing this film with him in the months leading up to Chadwick's death, unaware that the words being written for King T'Challa would never be spoken. We, as lowly viewers, did not know the king was dying and that he had been fighting this ancient enemy, this sickness that has robbed us as a race of our loved ones since before we first learned to even comprehend love. We learned... We learned that he had known about his condition ever since, just after his first appearance in Civil War, one of the only great things to come out of 2016, and as we noted back then, he was instantly a superstar. In 2018, still quietly, privately battling this stage 3 illness, Bozeman lit up the big screen once again in Black Panther, the film that showed the world what Wakanda could be. Chadwick played his role with thoughtful humility, surrounded by amazing women, as this became so much more than a superhero movie. The Academy ruled Green Book was better, but there's no accounting for taste, something you can see in Chadwick's eyes as that memorable jife zooms in on him clapping at a stage of white men while looking directly at us. He appeared again in Infinity War a few months later, a movie many went to see just for more Wakanda, and T'Challa was one of the most heartbreaking of disintegrations as half of everyone turned to dust at the close. And I recall cynics scoffing that this tragic ending to an Avengers movie was, of course, meaningless. Marvel wouldn't discard all these new superheroes when franchise follow-ups were easy money. But as things shook down, this really was a portent of something immensely special being taken from the world with a cruel snap. When Chadwick walked out of that portal at the climactic conflict at the end of Endgame, that's truly was the last time we would see him alive and in the flesh as T'Challa. It was a fleeting, ghostly final appearance of a man noticeably thinner and worn, a man who knew how important the job he was doing was and how much he needed to live. All of it's been very personal, just watching the kids um, experiencing it. And for me, I would say... Uh, you know, there, there, there are two, um, two little kids, uh, Ian and Taylor, who um, recently passed uh, from cancer. And throughout our filming, I was communicating with them, um, knowing that they were both terminal. And, and what they what said they to me is, is, and their parents said, said, they just, they're, they're trying, trying to hold, hold on. on. Till this, this movie comes, comes. Mm. and I, I, to a certain degree, you hear them say that, and you're like, like, wow, that's like, I gotta get up and I gotta get up and go to the gym. I gotta get up and go to work. Um, you know, I gotta learn these lines. I gotta work on this accent. Uh, you know, seeing how devoted all of my castmates are, and knowing that 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 will be something meaningful to them. But it's to a certain degree, it's, it's a humbling experience because you're like, this can't mean that much to them, you know? But seeing how the world has taken this on, seeing how the movement, is, how it's taken on a life of its own, I realized that they anticipated something great. And um, I think back now to a kid and just 
you know, uh, waiting for Christmas to come, waiting for my birthday to come, mm. uh, waiting for a toy that was going to that I was going to get a chance to experience or a video game. I did live life waiting for those moments, mm. and so it put me back in the mind of being a kid, just just to experience those two little boys' um, anticipation of this movie. And when I found out that they. Take your time with it. (sighs) Yeah. It's, it's, it means a lot. He died age 43, which is my age today, leaving the remaining cast and crew with the impossible task of making a follow-up to 2018's Black Panther right in the middle of the most disruptive, widespread, and to millions of people, deadly pandemic of the modern age, with the death toll approaching 7 million at current numbers and the lingering effects being extremely dangerous to the vulnerable like say my wife and child who have asthma my mother and sharon's father who for their own safety during this miserable time were confined to their houses because of their neuralgia and of course extremely vulnerable in 2020 would have been those battling with now stage four cancer Chadwick died suddenly in his home with his wife. He left no will, which suggests even he did not expect the ending of his time with us to be so fast and final. Marvel Studios wisely and tactfully decided not to recast their established character, as they have done with, say, William Hurt's General Ross. Instead, King T'Challa dies in his own world just as suddenly and tragically, leaving everyone behind bewildered, their grieving process complicated and unimaginably intense. In this way, Ryan Coogler allowed his actors to express how they were feeling within their performances, which made this a film I was dreading even just seeing, let alone doing an in-depth show about. And the making of the second Black Panther, this impossible task, was made all the more impossible by the film's lead, Letitia Wright. In December 2020, Wright generated backlash for sharing a 69-minute video from the YouTube channel On The Table on Twitter, which is the previous name of the X site, in which Tomi Ariyami, a senior leader with the Light London Church, questioned the legitimacy of the COVID-19 vaccine and accused China of spreading COVID-19, amongst other controversial statements. YouTube deleted the video for violation of its terms and services. Wright later clarified, my intention was not to hurt anyone. My only intention of posting the video was that it raised my concerns of what the vaccine contains and what we are putting in our bodies, nothing else. She subsequently left social media. On October 2021, The Hollywood Reporter reported that Wright had parted ways with her US team of representatives due to uproar over the video and her alleged continued promotion of anti-vaccine statements on the set of Black Panther Wakanda Forever during productions in Atlanta. Wright returned to social media to deny these claims during a November 2022 feature at Inveriety, Wakanda Forever 
River Coast star Angela Bassett stated she had never heard right-sharing anti-vaccine statements during filming, while Marvel Vice President Nate Moore claimed that he did not know her vaccination status, that she was not sharing her her views on set, and that her status did not affect production. During the interview, her publicist and representatives evaded Variety's attempts to ask about her updated vaccination status, instead redirecting them to Wright's prior statement in 2021. Later that month, Wright condemned the Hollywood Reporter for an article that included her amongst award season prospects with personal baggage in which its author Scott Feinberg compared her past comments with men accused of abuse and sexual misconduct. She reiterated that she had already apologised for her comments two years prior and had remained silent on the topic and accused both the publication and Feinberg of having an agenda against her which she described as vile and disgusting behaviour. But back during the shoot on August 25th of 2021, Wright was temporarily hospitalised with what were believed to be minor injuries sustained in an accident while filming a stunt in Boston. Wright went to her home in London for recovery in September while filming continued to shoot around her character. The United States Centre for Disease Control and Prevention implemented a new rule on November 8th requiring non-US citizens to be fully vaccinated against COVID-19 and provide proof of vaccination before travelling to the country. The Hollywood Reporter noted that this could present an issue for Wright's return to filming in Atlanta since she's not a US citizen and was reportedly not vaccinated. In mid-December, The Hollywood Reporter confirmed that filming would resume in late January 2022 in Atlanta with Wright involved. Foggy and Moore and executive producer Louis Desposito uh, confirmed upon the start of their hiatus that Wright was the film's new lead. Filming resumed by mid-January 2022 with a recovered Wright returning and was expected to continue for four weeks. Filming was originally scheduled to resume on January 10th but was delayed by a week after cast and crew members, including Nyong'o, tested positive for COVID-19. After we had seen Wakanda Forever in June 2023, Namor actor Teno Huerta was accused of sexual violence by musician and activist Maria Elena Rios. Rios accused him of being a sexual predator and that the Mexico-based activist organization Poder Prieto was protecting him. Huerta has denied the allegations and cited them as reasons for leaving an upcoming Netflix project. And the night before we went to see this film in the cinema, word reached our ears about the legendary Batman voice actor Kevin Conroy dying unexpectedly aged 66 of cancer. I lost the ability to talk that night, and it took 26 hours for my voice to return. The grief overload was just too much. And that's why it's taken me another year to prepare, and I'm still not there yet, for talking about Wakanda Forever. So I'm very glad we've got five guests on this one. I can turn this over to you folks. All of the above affected the filming and affected the story. And it affected future viewings of the film. And affected everything that we see in this two hour and 41 minute film, which is very hard to watch now. And it's the only the second time I've ever seen it today. I'm hoping I can, I, and maybe some other listeners can perhaps square some of this away as, as we talk about it, because I want to love this so much. I want to feel like it's a worthy tribute to both Chadwick and the continuation of Wakanda. I just want to hear as many good things as I possibly can. And also, if we can possibly exonerate some of the people who've been accused here, if there's any more information on that, that would also be kind of a load off. Because watching Letitia Wright play the smartest woman in the world with the whole anti-vax thing made it a difficult watch for me both times. So 
Let's talk about Shuri as a character because she uh, does not deal well with the grief at all. And that's kind of, that's her journey throughout the film. She was always not especially spiritual, as is shown in the original film when she doesn't particularly go in for all the pageantry of, of T'Challa stepping up to become the Black Panther. And that kind of doubles down within her here. So what does Shuri have to learn? What does she go through in this whole movie? The floor is open to absolutely everyone. I would think Shuri has to learn to step away from technology just a tiny bit and learn more about herself and what she's feeling. And it's a a big old arc throughout the whole, whole movie mm. of her learning not to dig into her lab and stay there and just work on things continually mm. and just avoid, avoid, avoid. And obviously that's understandable because she lost a brother. Mm. And the brother meant a lot to everybody and obviously for her it was a personal connection as well so it meant a lot to her but instead of processing it as we'll probably discuss further on she continues to avoid it until she's literally thrown into the fire of of it which i won't divulge now because it will become part of what we discussed later on but she has to stop avoiding the horrible things that are going on has to go through it and grieve and understand more about why she's the person she is it's about personal growth and grief that's i think the biggest theme of the whole movie everybody grows through their grief i do think the the exploration of how grief affects how everybody reacts in this film is Shuri is kind of a centre point for that. She's like the focus because she's the central character, but also because everyone around her, her lack of grieving, her inability to grieve and her locking herself into place in, in part because she doesn't know how to process that loss. Because as you say, Akila, she's so caught up in this technology. She, she doesn't have that connection with herself anymore, which is necessary to feel grief and to process it but also because she has this sense of failure because in her mind, the inability to recreate the herb that could have saved him is the reason T'Challa is dead. And that failure informs on everything that she does until the final act. But the mm -hmm. way she interacts with the, the various members of her family and, the, and, and her culture who are also experiencing grief at the loss of T'Challa, we see through comparison with her immobile grief, how Ramonda, for example, has uh, a level of grief which is so compounded by this point through loss after loss but she deals with it through these tiny little releases that allow her to kind of deal with it a little bit at a time, but don't deal with all of it. And so it resurfaces when, when something else hits her. We've got the comparison with Nakia, who has removed herself entirely and looks like she's not dealing with her grief because she separated herself from everybody else who's experiencing it. But that's because she's dealing with it in her own way and that needs to be private and separate from the people who are grieving T'Challa as a leader rather than as a, as a personal connection. So I think the 
the focus being on what Shuri is not doing is shone back into the centre by all of the people around her and what they are doing and then that allows her lack of action to be magnified and mm. therefore makes the power of her taking over the mantle of the panther that much more intense. Yeah, definitely. And um, one thing that I always also found was um, it felt like Shuri is attached the grieving process, how grief is supposed to work with faith, because all of, especially her mother is a key example, she finds security in faith, the little rituals that she's created to, like, get past and grieve her, both her son and her husband's loss, but um, because she's got that in her mind that, look, this the ancestors, they're not really there, like, I don't have faith in that, it's, it's like, compounded her grieving process of not being able to face it because she's locked in first well, I don't believe any of that. So I can't take comfort from these rituals, from these uh, things that you've helped deal with it. And I'm in an attempt to find her own way. She's sort of mired herself in that. Uh, like one of the key like months of the film that I feel stands out is when they're doing the funeral procession through Wakanda and you get a like first person view of what they're seeing as they're going down and obviously the cultural celebration of it's more about someone's life than death so everybody's singing and dancing but it feels like from uh shuri's point of view is just why are you all like how are you able to smile like i just lost my brother there is a dark symbolism in the fact that shuri's jarvis is named Grio because, and I, I had to look this up because when I, when the, what's the word, the uh, closed captioning told me what the character's name was the first time, but even before the name was mentioned, I had to look it up. A Grio is a combination storyteller and oral historian, the kind of person that could give Shuri the kind of context regarding her culture their beliefs, the mythology, and all that sort of thing. But Shuri has complete control over Grio. If she doesn't want to hear something that Grio says, she can tell them to shut up. And she can have them tell her only the things that she wants to know. And that is a way of controlling her environment, but that is also a way of not dealing with her grief. The other big thing Shuri goes through is basically an echo of what T'Challa goes through in Civil War right down to like some lines being echoed which is for lack of a better term revenge is bad is essentially what she has to learn and I, I thought it was fascinating how she has to like deal with that when especially because at first she, she basically wants revenge but because T'Challa died the way he did, there's no one to take revenge against. Mm -hmm. And so it's just all unfocused until other things happen. But uh, the, the biggest thing watching it again for me, I, I don't know how deep we're going to go. We want to go in right off the bat, but at the very final. Okay. The very final. No more with, deep with her, with her fight with uh, Namor at, at the, it's, <laughs> 
this is only something I just noticed, and it's kind of weird. I don't know how on purpose. It's almost exactly the same climax as The Last of Us 2 had, like right down to two people fighting it right on the shore over over Ben's story, and then one person deciding right at the last moment they're not going to take revenge because they re- remembered what the person meant to them. It's it's fascinating. It's, it's like almost the exact same. And I, don't, I just her whole having to learn to that this isn't the way it just like revenge just makes things worse and will basically light a fire that burns the entire world as she basically says herself is uh is honestly maybe more fascinating than when Chochala had to go through it in uh civil war mm. I, I mean in uh yes yeah i think wakanda forever does a really good job of just in general showing the different facets of a complicated grief and a complicated death down to, you know, when when Shuri's kind of going through it and finally recreates the flower, she is finally able to, you know, engage in this ritual. The person she sees on the other side is not who she's expecting and it's not who she perhaps wanted to see. And this is after having now lost both T'Challa and her mother. And I just, I think it does a really great job of just showing how this process doesn't always go the way you expect it to or the way you want it to. There is the denial that Shuri has in, in so many ways of like, she is not facing what has happened down to the fact that you know her mother makes a point of the fact that she hasn't burned her funeral clothes and i i love that as a symbol that it definitely comes back at the end of like that act is supposed to mark the end of your grieving process and shuri hasn't done it it's a very clear indication that she's not facing what she needs to and she's um she's still kind of stuck in it and one, I think one of the most brilliant moments in the whole film to kind of illustrate that is finding out that her mother is not going to make it and it cuts straight to her right back in her funeral attire in yet another funeral. It's a really devastating moment, but it reiterates the fact that the mourning has not ended and it's even more complicated now than ever. One of the paratextual things at play is that even though the movie centers around specifically Shuri's grief, it's as much about the grief of all of the people involved with the telling of the Black Panther story. And at one point when Shuri says, my brother suffered in silence, that feels way more like it was about Chadwick, then specifically about T'Challa. And so therefore, regarding everything that happened with Letitia Wright, I also wonder to myself, how was this a necessary process for the actress and, and everybody else on set about having to continue... Wakanda's story without their original standard bearer. 
she does seem to have been hit particularly hard by mm. the loss of Chadwick Boseman. If you her interviews and the backstage stuff, she is frequently very, very emotional when she talks about him, and she free, she often refers to him as my brother, like not in character, just talking about Chadwick. It's almost impossible not to see an overlap of the real world events with how the movie plays out. Like you, you see it and you feel it and you can tell that everyone in the, in the cast is, is feeling that loss and like the emptiness is so potent, but it's, it really like for this film specifically, it is very difficult to separate the real world events from what's happening in the film. It's very notable that they never actually say, what T'Challa died of, just that it was some kind of illness. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm guessing that's part because, you know, they're the most advanced race, you know, country in the world. What could he have died of that they couldn't cure? So yeah. it avoids that. Yeah, this sort of thing is not supposed to happen in a place like this. I do like that they went back to Eric Killmonger's. The part that I just, it just it baffled me about Eric's behavior, burning all the heritage, the, the purple flowers, the everything that was sort of sacred. The fact that they aren't around is why T'Challa dies. He effectively kills T'Challa remotely by setting that timer there. And Shuri levels that at him when she sees him in the vision. This, the vision scenario annoyed the hell out of me because every single time we now see Eric Killmonger, whether it's what if or this, it seems to subtract from the depths of his character that we read in in 2018, the the level of regret he may have felt as he looked out over Wakanda. The fact that we are now talking to his ghost and he doesn't seem all that repentant. He's, you know, I can feel your anger, but very specifically, he doesn't say... I was wrong. See, I'd like to speak on that because I do feel like there was also a sort of a solidif- like solidifying of Killmonger's like ethos because you know, there is like a core thing of Wakanda was separationist, like isolationist uh, before he caused the conflict. He's he's not lying when he says like your your father was a hypocrite he wouldn't have saved that girl he would have killed her immediately hmm. anything for the safety of wakanda and i do like that they sort of threw back that i they they solidified that thing of i had a point you have to keep that he was a villain but he was resolute in what it went for and yeah i i did i did quite like that theme because i don't think killmonger was the sort of character who would regret what he went for. I do think he was a character that in the very last moments of his life, he realized he, he still said what he said when he died. He still said, bear me in the sea because um, I'd rather do that than be in bondage. So for me, the character already echoes that even to death, even though he had a taste of Wakanda, he was defiant even to the last breath. It's also kind of fascinating because the whole scene implies that that yeah the the uh, the ancestral plane seems to be a real place, but also s- kind of works on dream logic and kind of responds to the person who's there. Like oh yeah, like it basically says Eric mm-hmm. is there because Sherry wanted him to be there. Yeah, 
that's kind of how I interpreted it too. And mm. some of what she sees of Killmonger is her kind of limited impression of him from when he was alive, mm-hmm. but also echoing back what she wants to hear and what she wants, you know, she wants some kind of uh, confirmation that she's going about this, the, in air quotes, the right way. Mm. And so that, she only hears what she wants to hear again. Kind that, of, yeah. And that would mm-hmm. build on the conversation that she has with her mother by the watering hole when mm-hmm. she's talking about feeling T'Challa on the breeze. And Shuri says, all that is, is a construct of your mind so that you can mm-hmm. take some comfort in his loss. Mm-hmm. And in my notes, I wrote in capitals, all that is, honey, that is everything. That is the human mind being able to recreate this entire plane of existence in order to store what we've lost. That is huge. To give ourselves context through the sharp memories of how other people felt. Exactly. And and for it to come down to, not that it doesn't matter whether it's real or not, but that it's it's your mind constructing it that makes it real. Mm. It's also noteworthy that Disney uh, slash Marvel Studios did not recreate Chadwick Boseman digitally. I don't have a bullet point for this, but I did read it in the uh, notes while I was going through. I don't think... I mean, uh, Fast and Furious 7 did it extremely well with the very difficult filmmaking. They, oh, Maya, you were on that as well, yeah. weren't you? Yeah, uh, it's... Uh... Okay, so this sucks, mm-hmm. but it's it's now been the case where I've been on t- two separate movies where I learned about the death of one of these actors after having just been on set with them. Like oh. with Paul with Paul Walker, I mean, it was literally days. I, and when I heard that, I was I, it really knocked me for six because I was like, that's impossible. I just saw him. Like, I didn't know the guy at at all, but I was, you know, sharing the set with him. It's like your extended film family. And to hear days after just seeing them in person to, to find out that they're just not there anymore. It really, it was a, a total gut punch. And Chadwick Boseman was definitely not as recent because, you know, sharing a set with him on Avengers Endgame, that was 2017, 2018. So it was still a few years removed. But even still, it's it's tough to it's it's tough to bounce back from something like that, where it's like you worked with this person, you saw them doing their craft, and you know, in Chadwick's case, Doing it through quite a devastating and painful illness, you know, the the fortitude that that takes, the mental strength, the physical strength that it takes to work through something like that and still give this, you know, incredible performance is admirable and also terrifying and like I said is complicated grieving and complicated deaths um, doesn't always give you a clear cut path to how to process any of it so it it does kind of you know just 
from a personal standpoint, it, it, Chadwick's death did feel very personal. Um, and I didn't even know him that well. And I still felt that way. So you can only imagine what the rest of the mm. cast and crew, the creative leads went through when they found out about this. I uh, When we were watching the uh, Marvel making of Doc, there was footage of the uh, young lady playing Riri who auditioned as Shuri. And she was, it was stock footage of her on set with Chadwick messing around with him as they were performing the whole sister meets brother scene in the uh, beginning of the 2018 movie. And that got to me more than I would have expected. Just the idea that she had met him and sort of been there to help have the torch passed. Yeah, that was hard. Maya, can you tell us what your part in this was? When, when I don't know if you answered my uh, question on uh, the Discord, but I think we may actually have found you in the movie at one hour and eight minutes in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, probably. So I was brought on to work mostly with the underwater unit mm. for this film. So the way this kind of mm. panned out is that most movies of this scale, especially a Marvel film where there are just so many different action sequences and dialogue and everything else, you basically have your main unit, which is, you know, that's that's run mainly by the director themselves and their um, first assistant director. That's going to have your main cast. That's where Letitia Wright is going to be. That's where Lupita Nyong'o are going to be. All of like the the Wakandans, all the main cast. Um, that's where we're going to do mostly dialogue and kind of the business of moving the plot along. Then you'll usually have a, what we call a second unit or sometimes a splinter unit. Typically, the second unit is headed by a stunt coordinator or a second unit director who typically does come from a stunt background. Not always, but that is pretty typical. These are where your big action sequences are directed. So it's a completely different set. It is a completely different set of crew members. And on that set, you're mostly going to be seeing the stunt team, the stunt doubles, and a lot of background people. (laughs) Um, So that's kind of where that ends up. Then on on Wakanda Forever, they had an additional unit called the Underwater Unit, which is pretty self-explanatory. This is where we shot all of the um, the telecons, all of like Namor's scenes, anything that was involved in the water, which is a lot in this case. That was all the Underwater Unit. So I was brought on end of September, early October. 2021, right around the time that all of this stuff about Letitia Wright was coming out, I never met her and I never saw her on set at all. So I cannot confirm or deny any of that stuff about her being an anti-vaxxer or what her vaccine status was or anything like that. I simply don't know. But I do know that when I was brought on our our team was basically the same team that did the underwater sequences for all of the Avatar sequels. So they were in charge of training up the actors to do free diving, which is basically you know your underwater stuff without using any diving equipment. It's just breath holds, and you know they gave us quite a lot of leeway in terms of we don't really care how long your breath hold is, but 
stay in the scene as long as you can. Like basically just stay in it for as long as possible. And then if you do feel like you're starting to lose air, you feel like you have to come up just kind of as discreetly as you can, take yourself out of the scene, swim out of frame, and then go ahead and go up and and take your breath. And the people on top as like the, the rescue, the water safety people will be there to help. So I spent a couple of days of training with them, did a lot of their water safety, especially when they had, you know, the younger kids, the younger actors in the water. And I was also in some of the underwater sequences as a performer and helped with the the big dive suits that you see at the beginning of the film. Yeah. We had to kind of wrangle some of the equipment there and and serve as, you know, water safety for the two actors that were inside the big dive suits, which was a horrible pain in the ass. And I hated those things, but <laughs> that's uh, neither here nor there. Um, then, because I was such a high level of, you know, I've been through rescue dive training, I've been through dive master training all the way up to I'm an open water instructor. They had myself and another very experienced freediver be the the two people in the scene where Namor's mother gives birth to him in the water. So I I wasn't credited as this specifically, but like on paper, like in the call sheet and whatnot, I was called the doula's assistant. That's so exactly my, what Sharon said that you yes. probably were called. Uh huh. So my my partner in there was uh, was the doula. I was her assistant. So that was that's probably where I'm most prominent. There were a couple of scenes where I was like the, uh, one of the on land telecons fighting at the end, which also was quite an experience. But I didn't do that as much as the stuff in the water. Mm. And it's also a lot more difficult to see because uh, we all look very similar. We're dressed very similar. Everybody's got blue skin and we have those like weird breathing masks over our faces. So it's very difficult mm -hmm. to tell people apart unless you had a very specific stunt in one of those um, action sequences or in the fight. Like you could point yourself out and you're like, oh yeah, I was one of the people that got knocked off the boat or whatever. I wasn't one of those. I was just in the background for that. But yeah, you can see my face like pretty clear in the in the birthing scene so that was that was actually a very fun day and that was one of the times where ryan coogler was actually with us on the underwater unit set which Fantastic. was unusual he usually he typically wasn't there with us but he came in specifically to do that scene because it was such an important plot point for Namor's story and we he was very specific and wanted it to look basically wanted it to look as beautiful as possible so you know they shot it in more shallow water they used lighting effects that made it look almost ethereal and magical and like Kugler was really awesome like he was uh, very laid back super fun to work with but like actually he would get down to like his swim trunks and get into the water tank with us to direct us in the sea and like on the surface, which I thought was really awesome and did not expect him to do that. <laughs> so um, it was nice that he, like even in the water scenes, he was extremely hands-on. And I, I would say he's, I would categorize him as somebody who's like an actor's director. Nice. Yeah. 
So that means just that you've been in two of the most memorable visual Marvel sequences because you were also in the portals scene mm-hmm. uh, in Endgame. And in that Endgame, also means yeah. you're in the trailer for uh, Wakanda Forever because I very distinctly remember that underwater birth. You're just on the right. Yes, that's nice. correct. Mm-hmm. Maya, just briefly, I remember multiple times in the School of Movies Discord where you commented on how your various underwater work certifications were proceeding. And I Mm -hmm. I guess it hadn't even occurred to me at the time that some of this might be because of working on Avatar or working on Wakanda forever. Was there any specific timing on that in terms of like there were certifications you were trying to get because of your work with Wakanda forever? Or was this all prior to? This was all prior to. So I hadn't done a lot of free diving previous to working on Wakanda Forever. It was kind of a coincidence that I got my instructor certification the same year that Black Panther 2 started filming. So I believe I was certified in like April or May of that year. And then I got the call to work with them in September. I didn't know that they were going to be doing as much you know, work in the water as they did. But even with my lack of free diving experience, they said that was okay because they would train us up. They would teach us techniques to help get our breath holds, you know, longer in the water, which they did. I started off pretty much not having a breath hold at all and can now, I'm almost at like a three minute breath hold in the water, which is pretty great. So, I mean, their techniques that what they taught us actually did help. And it certainly gave me, you know, more experience and a skill that I had not really worked on previous to that point. But, you know, just having that level of experience, because you can't reach instructor level without having done a certain number of dives, without having the rescue training, without having, you know, there, there are certain responsibilities that are expected of you. So, it certainly didn't hurt that I had all of that going for me, even if I wasn't as experienced on the free diving side of it. They were totally fine with that and said, like, we will teach you. The important thing is that you do have this experience. You have had these responsibilities before, and we trust you to take care of the, you know, eight to 10 year olds that we're going to be having swimming in the water with you guys. Can we talk about Nemor? Oh boy. <laughs> okay. Uh, as in just the, the character, I'm actually not going to uh, ask to delve into uh, Tenoch Huerta here. Um, mm-hmm. But the, the character of Nemor, uh, he's, to me, watching this film and watching where the points of tension lie, he's the second core character, with the first being Shuri. Uh, their paths are quite similar. But I was trying to pay super close attention at the end, which is, had, had always bothered me after watching it. But I couldn't, like I was so dazed at watching it in the cinema, I couldn't really pass out exactly what I was seeing. And it felt, felt like it was jumping to its conclusions quite early. It's also because I've written books that end in quite similar ways. Greg, yeah. you'll probably, uh, and Chris, you'll probably know why I had real difficulty writing both Panther Soul and Stone Spring Maidens. Mm-hmm. 
around about the time Chadwick Boseman died. I was like, I can't write about what Harry's going through. I can't write about what Colo's going through. Mm. Too much. Especially rewatching this for the second time, it was very difficult for me to not draw a whole bunch of parallels between what was going on in Wakanda forever and what was going on, not as much with Panther Soul, Stone String Maidens, absolutely, regarding the comparison between Shuri and Harry. But there was also a very strong resonance regarding any time Namor faced off with Ramonda or Shuri that made me think of the confrontation at the Capitol between Thomas and Seth. In Arlington. In Arlington, yes, specifically. One of the things that struck me immediately, and I remember you asked me to say more about this at the time, was when the Wakanda Forever trailer came out, and I stood up and took notice at the fact that the Talakan people referred to Namor as Kukul Khan, mm-hmm. something which M'Baku specifically pointed out in the trailer, that they think of him not as a king, but as a god. And Kukul Khan was something I knew a little bit about thanks to other literature on the subject that I'd written, usually specifically fictional literature. Um, it's a uh, an alternate version of the Aztec god Quetzalcoatl. And like, depending on where you're getting your information from, there is a lot of overlap between the two, but Quetzalcoatl is often portrayed in certain stories as being a far more um, benevolent god, and Kukukan is a darker version of that. Now, the Kukukan is basically um, translated through the Mayan language, and uh, Quetzalcoatl is therefore what the Aztecs called him, and I, I, I haven't done the research completely. I don't know how much overlap there was in terms of how the two different cultures, specifically the Aztec Empire, perceived him. But more specifically, because the Talakan people refer to him through the name of a god, that means that it's very difficult for him not to perceive himself as a god. And therefore, that informs every interaction he has with everybody else when he is talking with Shuri over Ramonda, there may be a little bit more vulnerability, but I still see very much an element of Seth in him, as in he is dictating terms. Mm. His viewpoint is the most important. He can potentially sympathize with the Wakandans, with Ramonda, with Shuri, but his needs are paramount. Well, that just makes my point so much more succinct. Had they been as unified as you always ask of them, my family would not have stood a chance at hurting them as badly as they have. So in turn, your people have demonstrated to me their ineffectiveness as a species. Are you the source of this plague? You use such condemning language for what we represent. I could just as easily level the same word at you humans. This is why I brought you up here, for perspective. 
This, I think, is uh, where the film ever so slightly fell down for me because it feels like Shuri needed to change throughout this story. They, they established firmly what was happening there and clearly Namor needed to change. But they did so well when we get to Talo Khan of just delivering... Well, for a start, it was an incredibly inspired decision to bring the Nemor character towards Aztec roots. Because this guy's been around longer than almost every other Marvel character. He's only rivaled by Captain America and the robot body of the Human Torch that eventually ended up as the the stuff that Vision was made of. Uh, But he's been around since World War II. And he's always been this ponce of a prince, very uh, imperious. And, uh, you know, he hounds the Fantastic Four. One of the first things he ever did was kidnap Sue Richards. So, like, he kidnaps women. That's what he does. And he doesn't see there being any problem with that. But when we get to the city and Shuri looks at all these people, they, like I said, they do such a great job that I can't see why she doesn't immediately go, right, okay, okay, okay. Now I've seen the city... I can see where you're coming from, and then have them reach an accord there. It feels like the movie forces conflict from that point. And originally, both times I watched the movie, I believed that the woman who gets killed was Namora, or uh, that would be uh, Namora's sister, but it's not. It's an unnamed female guard. So I I could understand... Nemor going, right, I am going to lay siege to Wakanda for this horrendous thing that has happened. It baffles me that he reacts in such a fatal way that kills Queen Ramonda. And obviously everyone watching the film was already reeling from the death of Chadwick. And they're like, oh, great, great. Angela Bassett's performing, like she's giving the screen performance of her lifetime. Oscar-worthy stuff here. Her speeches are all incredible. She's on fire. And they drown her. And watching it the second time today, I was like, at least she dies doing something wonderful, bringing the next generation of superheroes out from the depths and saving Riri's life to do it, but losing her own in the process. But I don't get Namor. I don't get where he's coming from. He immediately turns up, threatens Wakanda, because it would be good PR to attack and kill Wakandans to show the world how powerful they are so no one else fucks with them. And he's just so set on this plan that there seems to be no negotiation at all. He's either be my friend or be my enemy. Only a Sith deals in absolutes. He is such an obstinate character, which fits with the Namor I know. However, to get to the end, it feels like the only thing he realizes is he could be beaten. And that's not revelatory for me. It feels like he should have observed something that made him feel for the people of Wakanda the way Shuri felt when comparing the people of Wakanda to his people. Or his recognition of Shuri letting go of the idea of vengeance because she realizes that... And and one thing I really liked about that that fight sequence and the way that plays out is when she has that little flashback in reverse where mm. she sees all of the, the damage and hurt that's been caused being undone. Yeah. Is she realizes that, that she, of, of her two choices, mercy or vengeance, 
neither of them is going to undo what's happened, yeah. but vengeance will cause more damage. Yeah. And that's why she makes that choice. He is in exactly the right position to recognise that, but doesn't. And there's a little bit of character slip in the incident that incites all of this in the first place because Shuri is the one who recognises that not saving this woman is going to start a war. Nakia, who is a spy, who understands where conflict should be avoided at all costs, says, nah, let's bounce. Yeah, and shoots the guard and because she seems to have found the only fatal weapon in Wakanda because everything else just stuns you. <laughs> I love the water grenades because they feel organic. They feel like nature's wrath in one little throwable thing. So it's like rather than just fire and metal and destruction coming out of that, it's a little mini tsunami that just <laughs> explodes. Yet Nakia's extraction of Shuri feels bungled in a way that Nakia never accounts for either, which pisses me off. And I spent the whole film wishing that it was actually Lupita Nyong'o actually going through the big dramatic arc of having to let go of T'Challa, at least her grief about him, because she's an actress I already know is capable of incredibly intense performances and didn't have everything else that Letitia Wright was saddled with in bringing us herself on screen again. And I honestly hope that she did get to a point where she was like, I, I actually, no, uh, in the face of all scientific evidence, I am going to kind of consider that I was you know, out of order there or something. Just, I, I would like to give her the benefit of the doubt. A lot of people were saying, you know, she's young, but she's 30. Everybody had to decide where they were going to stand regarding vaccinations and the anti-vax side of things. <sighs> Couldn't help but feel dangerously, deliberately ignorant. Uh, well, fear. the problem is you're, you're sort of running into... There is an ongoing issue with the black community and the medical mm -hmm. community. That's where that ends up happening, so you end up turning to faith. And a lot of times your faith leaders, if they're not in agreement, you go with that. That's There's yeah. a hard dichotomy that comes with anti-vax in the back community, especially in the UK, because I went through having to convince family members yeah. like uh, to get vaccinated. It was a whole thing to the point where it's a subject that I have difficulty engaging with it because it just brings me back to a lot of like family strife, just mm -hmm. trying to... Mm. ensure families say so it's a thing where like i fully understand why it happened with her it's disappointing but mm. it's easy for me to understand why it happened mm. okay. regarding your earlier musing on why it is that talokan and wakanda come to conflict i can't speak deeply onto this maybe aquila can i've been in preparation for this, I was watching a bunch of different videos, one among them being uh, FD Signifier, a content yes. creator that speaks a lot to um, black mm -hmm. culture and black media and the black experience. He did a very long episode on the original Black Panther and talked about how that movie is what caused him to become a YouTube personality. Um, and so but I watched some of the stuff that he had to say about Wakanda Forever and at least part of that is symbolism in regards to how black and brown people come into conflict 
in the mm-hmm. real world, not everywhere, but like in specific parts of the U.S. in particular, um, and that that's that's a problem that they come into conflict when the real enemy is elsewhere. But is it it, it is at least symbolic of a real thing that actually exists. It's very much. I have watched the episode of, of a Mefty Sictifier, and I was reminded of. Without going into it too much, the idea of of divide and rule, as in you take one marginalized population, take another marginalized population, and they butt heads largely to curry favor with the oppressor. So it's complex. And obviously, as someone who's watched it now like three times, um, I wish they was... Obviously, towards the end, they came to kind of some sorts of truce and understanding, not coming to killing each other and actually getting Namor to yield. But I do wish they had, and I hope they do reapproach it in mm. terms of we now have these two peoples who are have substantial power, which will probably come into play with um, phase six. Um, who have resources and um, how they move through the world and how their populations have adjusted accordingly. So now, after three watches, I do see that final sequence of them coming to loggerheads, but then coming to like a fragile truce of sorts. Mm. Makes me makes me makes me hope. That they we actually hear from more Talakan. I doubt it because they literally live underwater. But I hope they kind of return to that from a different perspective, rather than a militaristic perspective, but more of a diplomatic perspective. But we'll see. Yeah, the it, the main conflict between them seems to almost stem from like Wakanda doesn't really have any like history with like colonization like they mm. kind of existed before you know the scramble for africa and they just kind of turtled themselves and ignored it and nothing ever happened to them while talacan is was born out of the the spanish conquistadors showing up and destroying the maya civilization and that seems to be why the even you know hundreds of years later the talacan are super defensive about the whole thing and that seems to mm-hmm. be where Namor who was there is is coming from yeah like, oh yep these these people are gonna they're gonna ruin everything even at the end when they have a piece you're like yep they're eventually gonna come for Wakanda and you know who's gonna be here us it starts with the remember the exciting incident is the rest of the world larger world the main powers are looking for vibranium the only reason Namor's here is because they took the work of a teenage girl to detect this viable resource because they, while still trying to steal it from Wakanda, and obviously the other location already has a nation around it, and that's what sparks the incident. And to parody, to parrot what FD said in his video, so it's the whole, the whole, my whole emotion about a lot of the film is. I understand, like, why the conflict is happening. Like, I understand the themes behind it. It just doesn't feel good to watch because mm. the constant thing in the background is 
like, and they come to it at the end, just like you two shouldn't be fighting. At the end of the day, your main threat is the colonizer, the wiser world who want your resources. Mm. And it's where the theme like comes into conflict with the like actual substance of what the theme is trying to get across. And I do think they they seed that early on. The fact that you have this ship mm-hmm. that is it, it it evokes the beginning of Winter Soldier. This is a U.S. ship that is somewhere it shouldn't be doing something it shouldn't be doing. Morbius is on board. He's testing in international waters. <laughs> it does feel a little bit, like you are saying, it's it's a bit close to home, kind of on the edge of being a little bit too real and a little bit too mm-hmm. like the real world. And no, it doesn't feel good to watch at all. At the same time, I I do kind of like the the very final fight at the end between Shuri as a Black Panther and Namor being a kind of a parallel of the original Black Panther and Killmonger where you don't really want it to be happening and you hope that they can come to some kind of accord with each other before it goes completely south. And in this case, it they do kind of come to that tenuous agreement and that uh, tenuous like... All right, we're it's, uh, everybody t- hands off. Like, mm-hmm. hold on a second. Let's step back from this and just try to find some kind of truce. But it is kind of gut wrenching to watch because it does feel so real. I feel then, like uh, Namor, as he was flying away from Wakanda, having killed the Queen Mother or the Queen. He should have flown over the streets that he had just flooded and just seen drowned Wakandans floating in the water and just we'd seen a bit of something on his face, like this is sticking in there and breaking off. Mm. But then then have him argue with, he didn't have a well-developed lieutenant. They had Namora there. They had, Mm. uh, Atuma is like a major antagonist in the Submariner mythos. So you have him be, you know, like, you know, maybe we have to, okay. You have them be the demon and angel on his shoulder, effectively saying, no, we must attack now from Atuma. And maybe, maybe your feelings about of regret for having harmed Wakandans here are actually valid and have him eventually give in, but uh, to the uh, more aggressive side of things that we've got to do this to protect. And then maybe Atuma's wife is the one who gets killed. And so like his, he's consumed with vengeance and obviously just something to give Nemor a bit more of a sort of a human angle on mm. this, as opposed to what seems like the best cover so far for a studio mandated, we must have a bit of a fight at the end. Like I said, the thing that seems to change his mind is, whoa, I didn't expect to get beaten. (laughs) Well done. Okay, you're right. Let's just time out on this war. (laughs) I I will say Namora actually does. Like, the the problem is there is no uh, shoulder angel, but Namora is very, like, his shoulder. Yeah, that's true. She does turn up at the end. That's when you said that's Namora. And I'm like, oh, I thought that she was the one who died. Yeah, she is constantly no. saying, like, even at the end, she's like, I don't get why we didn't just kill everybody. Yeah, exactly. It's like, she is a dangerous person if you pay attention mm-hmm. to her. Yeah. Yeah, they've got, uh, he's got two devils on the shoulder, basically. Right. And I, I agree with you, Alex, that I think it would have been nice if they had added 
something with Nemor's character where, you know, if he had like a moment where like you can see he kind of regrets all of the destruction happens mm. happening to Wakanda, everything that happened to them that he caused mm. and that his army caused as a direct parallel to this was a very protected, rich in resources place, a very beautiful place, rich culture, just like mine. It would have been nice if we'd had more of a clear moment with him mm. to, to kind of sit with that for a moment. Do you know what could have been sacrificed in order to get a good 10 minutes of extra film where the second key character who does have to change by the end could have had some thinking time? Get rid of Ross get rid and of, fucking yeah. Val. I am I so just, sick of Val. I was just going to say, like, I do not understand. <laughs> Aside from trying to tie it in with some of the Disney Plus series or some of the mm. larger like expanded universe stuff. I do not understand why she's here. She's so obviously dodgy. Like she's Justin Hammer, but a lady. <laughs> and I would understand that if every time she approached someone like Yelena, she'd go, oh, you are um, exactly like asshole who uh, sent me on mission before. No, goodbye. Goodbye, American. Um, if that had been the response from smart people and she'd been like, uh, hey, John, uh, you need me to, you're a blunt instrument and you need to be pointed in a direction. Do you want to be my US agent? And I had him go, uh, I don't know, but I, you know, I haven't got much left as opposed to, yeah, I'm going to swagger around in a completely tonally wrong scene. Everything about this character fucking ruins the MCU because it makes everyone seem stupid because Julia Louise Dreyfus is having the time of her life playing a pantomime villain. And it's it's tiresome. I'm thinking of re-editing several things that have disappointed me about Marvel. For Love and Thunder, can anything be rescued from that thing? And maybe uh, Multiverse of Madness, but, but dial back some of Wanda's war crimes. But with this film, so little of it, even though it's 2 hours 41 minutes, would be actually stuff I'd remove. Except the Ross and Val stuff, because they lift right out. They just don't need to be there. And if you'd spent that time developing Nemor Moore, who is this fascinating character. I love the fact, by the way, the inspired design choice of referring to him as like the winged serpent. And he's always had these sort of scaly green underpants on and those wings on his feet. That just fits so perfectly in all of the Aztec stuff when he's descending on the throne. It's just, it was magnificent. And obviously finding out about Tenochtitl's accusations whether they are valid or not it was depressing as hell especially when combined with that what happened with jonathan majors with what happened with the guy who plays kamala's father in as marvel and the marvels which i just saw the other day and it made me feel like when they closed the doors on the infinity saga what was left started to rot in different areas and the new people they brought in had issues I don't want to talk about the future and I don't want to talk about how I feel about the MCU right now or how everyone seems to be a little bit exhausted with it. What I will say, though, is when we watched Secret Invasion and it turned out that Martin Freeman's character was a Skrull, I think everyone uh, involved was valid in saying, so everything that he said in Wakanda Forever is called into question now and everything he did, even maybe even in the original Black Panther... 
And then they kind of walk it back by having Martin Freeman, the real Ross, at the end get rescued. That show was horrendous. I could not stand watching that show. It did seem to sort of leave us with the feeling of, so everybody's been a scroll. Everyone on Earth has been a scroll since 1991. Yeah. <laughs> Just disregard the last several decades of stuff. And uh, even Marvel seemed to be trying to ignore it by... Uh, remember that scene in The Marvels where uh, Nick Fury was like, Hey, Carol, your good friend Talos died. I was with him at the time. Was he? I can't remember. When did Talos die? Did Talos die? Yeah. He mm. tells died. Tells yeah, he was shot there. by that. And next, next. He was shot by a Ken. The mo- <laughs> <laughs> he was. Oh god. <laughs> Notably, though, this is the first Marvel thing we've done since Thor: Love and Thunder, because Thor: Love and Thunder just repulsed me so much. And looking at the lineup for what was coming out afterwards, I was like, this is just like so much of our year is going to be devoted to Marvel stuff, so little of which is delighting me at the moment that I said, you know what, we'll cover them when we can. And there's now been so much that I don't think we can catch up on. Like, I'm not doing one on Secret Invasion. I'm not watching that again. I have difficulty thinking about going back in and watching She-Hulk because everybody hates it. It's (laughs) difficult to talk about where Marvel is going to go from here because they did seem to have a very clear map of what was going to happen in the beginning and the very first few stages. Like, I don't even know what phase we're on, but it's fine. You're in the MCU. I have no idea. No clue. But it does seem like they've kind of painted themselves a bit into a corner with anything can be explained away by this person was a scroll. Anything can be explained oh, away by it's a it's a multiverse thing. Like opening up the multiverse has almost like hamstrung them mm-hmm. and doesn't yeah. give them really a clear way forward. It it is kind of funny because this is the fear that too many of us had when Marvel and Disney started down this path of mm. look, you guys need to have an ending in sight and stop there because. Your comic books reboot every now and again because they write themselves into these corners of, yep. guys, we've overcomplicated mm-hmm. everything. Um, we need let, a crisis. Let's start again. But Burn it all they, down. <laughs> they're not going to do that because I don't think Disney are thinking that far ahead. It's the it's making too much money and just got to keep the train going. Mm-hmm. Sorry to be cynical about it, but that's no, my view currently are. on Why it. Why shouldn't you? I don't. <laughs> I don't blame you for being cynical. It's It does feel very much like a content mill at this point. Mm. They fell into the trap of when you have a multiverse that was previously not a multiverse and you have core characters ask, so, so what's, what's the point, the point of, of doing, doing anything, anything if in another world it went differently? I went out of my way with the new century multiverse to say it means the world to everybody in that world. They exist the same as everyone else. And unfortunately, I don't know about other people, but they did so well all the way up to Endgame that I got too much closure from Endgame. Mm. I was done. Yeah. <laughs> so no, I I, it did, it did feel, yes, it did feel like the logical conclusion to all of it, but it kept going. Mm-hmm. And it was weird. <laughs> Oh, what's that? Um, Another course? Uh, no. The pandemic screwed everything up. 
TV shows screwed everything up. The fact Correct. that the writers of WandaVision and the writers of Multiverse of Madness, both dealing with the same character, did not confer. And the fact <laughs> that uh, Elizabeth Olsen was reading scenes and she's like, there's a very similar scene that I already filmed for WandaVision to this, telling the writers them going, oh. And this lack of correspondence project to project, when dealing with key ongoing character growth, robs you of a consistent foundation. Like, even if they weren't massively planning each step of the Infinity Saga, they were really good at freeform jazz. They were really good at improvising. Oh, hey, we're going to just say that... Uh, like, we did, like, the, the, who was the double agent in Winter Soldier? Sitwell. Sitwell, Sitwell was clearly not originally written as a double agent. But then, he, oh, turns out he was a double agent. That's a way better scroll turn than say, oh, General Ross was, uh, sorry, not General Ross, two different Rosses, completely unrelated. Agent Ross. Agent Ross um, was, was a scroll. I, I've always hated the whole secret invasion premise to begin with, but... It just, I mean, after you see the Marvels, those two really do not mix. And so clearly the yeah. writers of Secret Invasion and the writers of the Marvels definitely did not confer, did not compare notes. Mm. And the Talos that would have been used in that, were he not killed in the other one, was going to be a completely different Talos. I'm starting yeah. to wonder if the writers of Loki 2 were just watching the executive suites around them and going, yeah, too many branches, this is all going to fall apart. And do you know what the, uh, the, the signifier was when they were using uh, Infinity Gems as paperweights in uh, the first episode of Loki? It was like, oh, that's a great visual joke. And it says that nothing that came before really matters and nothing that comes after this will matter either. Uh. It's the thing that's happened with this movie and John is the same thing that happened to the original Black Panther is there is a there is the overarching Marvel like aspects that have to be yeah. like pushed and put in and it always affects and brings down certain aspects of the movie because mm. look you need to get here we we don't really care how you get there just uh, get here and yeah. a lot of that is what happened with <laughs> Namor because like Go, he's got to be the bad guy. Um, you can't have a vill villain that fully has a point and like regrets what they do and everything. So um, you got to really like make him the villain in the moment, and we'll solve it afterwards. It's fine. Mm, hopefully, um, show wise at least, and that's going to change because they actually look like they're having showrunners again and actually oh. doing you know TV shows rather than rather than. Um, have trying to make basically take a movie extended apart movies. extended movies because that's what they've done they've sacked all the people from i think it was um the, the next daredevil and oh. they're restarting again so born again is born again yes okay yeah. hey so, this lengthy game of consequences is not working out but for that, us that's we need frightening a in and of itself the idea oh we've got big plans for daredevil no we're scrapping those plans like, yeah. we're going to have showrunners again. It's kind of like, in a surprise announcement, all of our buses will now have drivers again. <laughs> As opposed to a rabid chimpanzee. <laughs> it wasn't working out. When we're talking about the effects of Marvel TV on the ongoing MCU canon, an unexpected one that I want to bring up is Moon Knight. Mm -hmm. oh, because yeah. Moon Knight confirms that 
the all these other Egyptian gods are aware of the ancestral plane mm-hmm. as an existing place, which means and that be- it's not uh, potentially part of Shuri's uh, mental way of grieving. It or neither is it a, a, a hallucination. It is absolutely a real place. I would argue, from a storytelling perspective, it can be both. Yeah, yeah. Th- yeah. There, there is that possibility because. Um, the uh, the hippo goddess whose name I'm forgetting right now, she mentions that the ancestral plane exists, and of course Bast is a very notable Egyptian goddess, and she doesn't go into too many details, so it could be more like a genius loci, more like a Silent Hill place where it reflects back the person experiencing it on them, but when... Egyptian gods do definitely exist and are very separate from whatever they were trying to do with as with the Asgardians. Mm. It does make us ask questions. You'll notice that I haven't confirmed in concrete what happens after death in New Century, despite the fact that it is of great interest to me because I wanted yes. to keep some things mysterious. And I, I know how much you love that whole like. It can be one thing, it can be the other, it can be both, but we're not confirming one way or the other. Yeah. Uh, that Valhalla as well, from uh, Thor Love and Thunder. At the uh, the end, it's like she just turns up and goes, oh, so this is just like another place then. Cool. <sighs> Did I just turn into dust? I mean... <laughs> <sighs> anyway, uh, let's go back to the actual uh, to Wakanda Forever because there's plenty of other fantastic characters uh, that, that go through a lot that, in their grief here. There's uh, Riri Williams, uh, the long-awaited appearance of Ironheart. On a slight anecdotal note, by the way, I created the character of Harry Arlington sometime around 2014, planning out the next few books, including Arlington and Steamheart. And I was like, wow, who created Steamheart? And I created this engineer character that I wasn't going to actually write until the year 2016. And uh, then Marvel came up with Riri Williams, the, the successor to Tony Stark's Iron Man. And they were originally going to call her comic Iron Maiden. And I was originally going to call Stone Spring Maidens Iron Maidens. And then the band Iron Maiden said, no, you can't. So if they said that to Marvel, they'd definitely say that to me. So Marvel went with Iron Heart, which was actually my first choice after Steamheart. <laughs> so I was like, right, great. So I went for Stone Spring Maidens, the fictional I made it up uh, uh, material in uh, the New Century Multiverse. So uh, at the very least, that is distinctive and no one else is going to be using that. It's always been strange me watching Riri because I work on Harry so much. And then when I see Riri in Marvel, I'm like, okay, so how much of Harry is in there? despite the fact that the two characters were brought, uh, were created and then were given their storylines entirely independently of each other. I don't read Ironheart so that I don't use Ironheart, if that makes sense. But obviously here, and for Earth 616, that's the shows and uh, uh, movies, <laughs> and all the other Earths that it's connected with, uh, I, I wanted, to, uh, I was excited about finally seeing Riri. And she's almost struggling to keep her head above water in this sea of astonishing actors all going through their own incredibly severe grief, you know, or preparing for war. It's, it's almost like she's been thrown onto a moving train and is just trying to hold on. 
Which I think but, for her for her age, for her position mm. in the narrative of the MCU as a whole, does make sense. That mm. she is this small child, effectively, who's been thrown into circumstances which are too big for her. Similarly to how she's been thrown into the very adult world of working for the CIA. She's still mm. at college. That that shouldn't be something that she has to process and deal with. Mm. The idea that she created this uh, vibranium detector and it's gone on to be used in international conflict. She's 19. She should not have to be dealing with that. So... Mm. All the elements of her story and her her narrative contribution to me are echoes of that. She is too small. She is too young. And her standing in front of Mbaku with this huge club, this massive man, who is almost double her size, is just this brilliant visual uh, representation that it doesn't matter the incredible suit she's constructed. She is too small for this. And yet not because of what she proves she's capable of. She's smaller than everyone like they actually comment on it and if you like even shuri is like a head taller than riri is i had forgotten because the overwhelming depth of emotion that the i remembered from watching the movie i had forgotten how fun and funny that whole scene with Riri meeting akoye and shuri was on the mit campus and everything that they did after that, like when they were running away from the cops. Obviously, as you were just mentioning a moment ago, there's an element of like how Kamala reacted to meeting some of her heroes, specifically in the Marvels, in regards to, oh, I know absolutely who you are without having to be told. I know your face. You are an inspiration to me in the world of the movie, let alone being asked to play an important role in this sequel to uh, the original Black Panther. It allows for some of the youthful insouciance to come out where they may be both smart black women, but she's coming from a less privileged place. Even though she's there at MIT, she made this vibranium detector in order to impress her teachers in order to impress the people above her in order to prove that she belongs here whereas shuri has always been in a place of privilege hmm. she's and, a princess yeah it's the exactly. princess and the pauper <laughs> she's one of the first uh, people in her family to go to college or something i seem to remember someone uh, mentioned that and that is a point of pride for her and um, mit as well as just college like it's a the most prestigious technical college in the usa And I also really love how her design philosophy, how her creative ability is far... Obviously, it has to do with what she had access to, um, as opposed to all of the super technology that the Wakandans have. But even when she's creating her new suit in Wakanda... It's based on a far more physical, raw crafting where it's all welding and forging. And when she paints, yes, when she paints it, she's using a a spray paint gun, even though they probably have a better way of doing it here in Wakanda. She's using the tools she is familiar with, even if she is creating a suit out of 
vibranium or whatever, you know, super technology she has access to now that she's there in Wakanda. Also the fact that the design, the streamlined design of the suit is clearly inspired by the Dora Milaje hmm. armour. Oh, one thing I did notice, when Queen Raimonda starts off in that hearing after the funeral... They're saying, eh, you said you were going to share your vibranium with us and you didn't. Which reminded mm-hmm. me immediately this time, but not before, of another Marvel second movie, Iron Man 2. Where Tony Stark is up on Capitol Hill being told, eh, you said you'd share your Iron Man tech with us and you didn't. And then both Tony Stark and Queen Ramonda go, yeah, but your idiots tried to steal from us or your idiots tried to imitate us. Look at what Justin Hammer's doing. Look at what the French are doing. Much more impactful here because of everything Wakanda represents and because of the astonishing dignity of Angela Bassett. Obviously, you know, Tony Stark was always delightful to watch, but here it it actually does give some weight to the whole, actually, we're going to hold on to the vibranium. You can't be trusted, you crazy, violent children. It gives weight to that, but it also, also it kind of reiterates the fact that Wakanda is so isolated and has been so cut off from mm. the rest of the world for such a long time that they couldn't even conceive that there would be another source of vibranium somewhere. Right. It's like, it's a huge blind spot that they have to, you know, the the whole Royal family and everybody else in Wakanda has to come to terms with at some point. Mm. That is I do like point. that. The, the, the movie doesn't pull punches about the the Western powers essentially being bad. Like there was a whole thing about like, oh wow, Ross is a CIA agent. How in the first movie, how are we gonna rectify? And they they rectify that because the only way Ross could be a helpful at all of them is he immediately becomes a double agent. Essentially, <laughs> he, that he he immediately just decides that he's not helping the CIA who are portrayed as nothing is bad. Oh, hang uh, on a second. So if he's a scroll, did he just lie about being a double? I mean, I'm, oh I'm just convinced that in in uh, Secret Evasion, Ross was just snatched shortly after this movie. He doesn't seem to have been that long in the show, unlike, say, you know, Rhodey. But could could I, Marvel just maybe say that Secret Invasion was actually a scroll and that here's the real Secret Invasion? <laughs> but uh, I, also, I also like the touch that it wasn't just showing a bit like the French try to raid them mm. but yeah and, and i noticed that specific, specifically it's a outreach center in mali mali was a former french colony right. uh-huh. mm-hmm. yeah it's yeah. very much never forget like the whole of europe was filled with colonizers yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> yes it ain't just america over here it's it ain't just, just not England. america it's the entirety of <laughs> europe that's why it's at a eu uh conference thing just like angela bassett Queen Ramon, just like, I know what you guys want. I know what you're about. You'll say one thing with that hand and slap me with the other. (laughs) Indeed. And that that is reinforces something that the the whole opening sequence with the funeral really struck me this time, that there is an incorporation of traditional and technological into the Wakandan rituals and practices. But the way they've progressed over the years, because it's been a gradual assimilation that they've been able to take at their own pace, rather than being grabbed and yanked and pushed into directions that they're not ready to go, they've been able to blend this sense of how ancient 
our culture is with the benefits that this new technology can provide us without having to tear themselves in two to lean in one direction or the other. Resisting being pulled into that world where industrial revolutions are forced is a part of the Wakandan character. Mm. It's where um, the two nations are similar. It's just both Wakanda and uh, Tekokan, they are not imperialist. They're not about expansion and the collection of land and power. They have their own place because they're not looking to expand. They've had to work with what they're good and sustain what they had. It's yeah. sort of it's why a lot of like Afrofuturism is often tied with like the solar punk movement because it's about uh, staying like sustainable and. Uh, keeping what you already have around yeah. while still progressing. Let's make ourselves the best that we can be without mm. tr- worrying about how we're going to spread that on to everybody else. I found myself wondering how the colonial powers could do this boneheaded thing like try to steal from the Wakandans after everything that happened with the snap and the blip you feel like that would be a bit of a wake-up call and that they would have learned something from that. But we see almost immediately that, like, just from the stuff they did with the Falcon show, that well, all these people are back I was going to say, after the Falcons, the, Captain, the new Captain America speech, how could you possibly go back to your old ways? And yet... Be better. <laughs> it feels like this might be once more a commentary on the real world because what other life-changing event happened recently oh right Mm -hmm. COVID-19 and everyone was like okay so we're going to do this for a while are we going to learn anything from it no we're going to go right back to doing things the way we were everybody get back to work please we got to feed the the capitalist machine thus solving the problem forever but what about forever (laughs) you know there's Karibi you know know, she obviously took inspiration from uh, Wakanda and culture but she's also clearly inspired by herself it's hard not to notice the iron heart armor looks like samus's armor in a lot of ways (laughs) with the big shoulders and the cannon arm yeah oh yes i love riri's media savvy uh and how she's like in theory shuri knows some of this stuff because she does that outdated meme from the first movie what are those but but riri is far more in touch with like what's going on right now and is definitely like even if the wakandans are inspirational they would have only been around a short time because of their hiding themselves so she's going to still be based more in what she would have grown up with including honestly some iron man stuff like she is iron heart and like the whole uh, I don't remember if that was a thing with her Mark One suit where she flies out of the garage, but definitely with the Mark Two, how does she take out um, Namora? She does it with a chest emitter. Mm-hmm. Very Iron Man. Unibee. Unibee. I also got watching the second. I also got like the sense that you know Wakanda technology is superior, but Shuri had some kind of respect for Tony, and like that might have been like. Like she seems really excited that uh, that Riri seems to be using Stark tech, and it's hard not to think that the Midnight Angel armors aren't slightly inspired by the because Wakandans didn't use they had that technology but they didn't make stuff like that until she decided to do it. Like I don't know, it's 
feels like she was inspired by Tony to some degree. Hmm. Speaking of the Midnight Angels, there, there's almost an embarrassment of riches in this film. Winston Duke is barely in it for my preference. Like, he's so great in every scene. And there's times when I'm like, oh, thank God, he's making me laugh. Like, I, I have just been so sad. And, you know, he's just marching, marching around eating that carrot. And, uh, and and kind of just doing Jabari noises to, to get attention to him. <sighs> uh, and Dan Guerrero, who somehow manages to handle both the intensity of the drama and to also do some of the comedy and the dryness. She's an amazing actress. And mm. oh, who's the uh, lady who was in I May Destroy You, who's her partner in this? Uh, Michaela Cole. Yeah, she's yeah. also fantastic. Oh, yeah. All she is is her job, Akoya, and she is fired from that and banished by Queen Ramonda in a way that you can see where yeah. she's coming from, but at the same time, my God, that is everything, just being yeah. stripped. It does mm. feel very harsh, and, like, you get it, but at the same time, ouch. Like, it's seriously, ouch. That Ramonda, it's... Ramonda probably has... She's carrying over a lot of stuff from the first movie. Like yeah. it, when she fires Okoye, it's she says it's not, but it's definitely a little bit because Okoye didn't help them when Killmonger took over and stayed loyal to the throne because of yeah. her job. Oh yeah, like she's very much. I didn't forget. I might have forgiven you, but I didn't forget. Yeah, <laughs> and she brings up of, Wakabi as well. Yeah, there's a ton of resentment that carries over to that and this is just one more thing to add to the pile that was a great mbaku scene as well where they're like oh good shuri's been rescued uh it, it was the oh thanks to the spy nakia great i'm sure she'll be rewarded by forever banishment <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah but it was really good to see how Okoye, essentially how world is being rocked as well because mm -hmm. first of all she finds out that Wakanda is not the only place you can get vibranium. Mm -hmm. Then she has to fight with the tuna, and instead of being like the general, absolutely kicking anybody's butt, she gets her ass absolutely handed to her, and she's scared, and then she gets fired, and then she has her own little redemption arc of, of sorts. Yeah. And yeah, she's kind of like the traditionalist of the group, and mm -hmm. is humor but also essentially who she was in the first one changes towards this one because she didn't like the um, exoskeleton the midnight angel skeleton first said it's ugly <laughs> but eventually she gets used to it especially when she gets new yeah. gear when she gets gifts it i made you a new spear there you go <laughs> that's all i needed again yeah. it's the humor that guerrera can handle it was it was her first big appearance in the walking dead as uh michonne yeah yeah that was that was yeah. kind of her breakout role she was a, that a was gift a big breakout to the role world for her. with that also i don't know how she could find the midnight angel armor ugly because like wh what are you even talking about like so cool the, the midnight angel armor it's like honestly like uh alex i kind of had a, a sidebar conversation with you about the costume designer, Ruth Carter mm -hmm. for this film, who is just one of the most awesome, badass people you will ever meet. She was absolutely fantastic. Those pieces of armor that, that was like my favorite 
costume in the entire movie mm. and like seeing it up close like right in front of your face was uh, my jaw was on the floor nice. i was like i have no idea what these outfits are but they're amazing they were absolutely gorgeous so it was largely so, practical as well then oh yeah the the suits were absolutely practical and Good. they had the like the helmets were all fabricated as well so you know that i'm sure they added some effects and some digital stuff to kind of enhance oh, yeah. the you know the the technology the app ah, sorry the technological side of it mm. but yeah those suits were like the actors were really wearing them the doubles were really wearing them and they were spectacular i absolutely loved those costume pieces and that was you know in a <laughs> in a just a sea of beautiful costumes those were were definitely the standouts in my opinion didn't she win an Oscar? If, for yes, her, she did. She nice. did. So, yeah, she's yeah. an Oscar win. Fantastic. The, uh, the actual to... Midnight Angels uh, costume was pulled directly from the comic pages. I had only just yep. read those issues before we sat down to watch Wakanda Forever. And I was like, I didn't even know these were in the movie. That's that's amazing. The uh, mm-hmm. like they're they're really accurate. It's it's like Spider Man suit levels of that. That's actually really awesome. Exactly that's what so I cool. expected. I think it's Annika and Io who are the Midnight Angels. That's yeah. Right. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, is uh, Okoya getting her own series or movie or what? There's a it's... whole um, supposed to be Wakanda series. We right. don't know, but they're talking about like a Tales of Wakanda. So I guess it's some sort of anthology series of not necessarily Okoye, but like a whole bunch of here's Wakanda. Here's the stories you don't know about Wakanda, yeah. maybe with some premium characters, but obviously everything at the moment is up in the air. Yeah. I, I, again, I was extremely relieved that Disney were not trying to digitally recreate Chadwick Boseman to somehow have scenes with him in them. The way they did with Carrie Fisher for uh, uh, Lucasfilm did with uh, the ninth movie, uh, Star Wars, just... It's not the same as the, the the digital ghost who appears at the end of uh, Furious Seven, and the you know the the, the neat stunt work that was done by uh, Paul Walker's brother that they kind of just papered over the cracks of uh, you know, using what footage they could. The in recent years we have sat and watched a de-aged Mark Hamill emerge from the shadows and soullessly take up huge amounts of space on Mandalorian shows. And the whole 28-minute opening of uh, Indiana Jones 5 reduced Sharon and Willow to shrieks when they were looking at the de-aged Harrison Ford face and his weird mouth moving. I would like to say they'll never make this convincing like the actual the process and this is this all ties into the ai advances we've had over the past few years the the idea of fabricating false people to put on our screens and say these are real part of the problem for me is that it is too close to deep faking yeah and considering what malicious shit is possible with deep faking yeah 
for and the questioning of reality that comes studio. through with exactly it. Yeah. for huge movie studios to throw money into developing the technology that ostensibly they're only going to use for entertainment, but you know some fucker's going to get hold of it and use it for something dodgy. Yeah, for for little sort of like non-speaking cameos, I was one of the only people who was not horrendously offended by Christopher Reeve's brief appearance in. Uh, the Flash, as I considered that to be like a moving version of a poster on the wall well, that, from that the original Supergirl like movie. Using old footage, yeah. which the 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 bit of Chadwick Boseman that they do have at the end of this is, is old footage, footage yes. from uh, the original Black Panther yeah. film, and that honestly felt like the way to do it if there was a way to do it at all is to put Wakanda front and center hence the title Wakanda Forever that did fill me with hope that they were going to be able to make this place its own character and everyone in it was an on it making an ensemble piece rather than just about Black Panther that's why I introduced this as Wakanda Forever rather than Black Panther Wakanda Forever because this is if anything the anti-Black Panther film it's sure he doesn't even pick up the mantle until the middle end of act three for us to be able to move forwards and consider that it's not broken and ruined and it didn't die with one man, and that it can still go on. I feel like that's exactly what everybody involved, including Chadwick, would have hoped for. Do you do you remember the confusing thing about the marketing for this, where they were were hiding who the new Black Panther would be, yeah. even though we all knew it was going to be Shuri, because that made the most logical sense. I don't, weird, interesting choice. I remember happening. <laughs> I anticipated that at the end that uh, uh, Shuri and uh, Mbaku and Okoya and Nakia would all show up in differently uh, stylized Black Panther costumes and make it that they're the Black Panther squad now and it's no one person has to necessarily have this mantle. And the fact that that didn't happen made me go, oh, so it's, it's just Shuri, but she doesn't make appearances, even at her own coronation as the Black Panther. I do like at the end how they imply that she's the Black Panther, but she's not going to take over as the ruler. Mm. Mm. But why M'Baku shows up at the end? Because he's essentially challenging to be king. And Mm. I think they say he is the king of Wakanda now. Right. It's also an acknowledgement of like the M'Baku were like the outcast cast, pardon the pun. But it was literally, even though Wakanda isn't imperialist, and their separation, they are still, they still had a caste system mm. and they were on the lower rungs. And at point of crisis, that's when you came to them. Yeah. And it's like a good ending to like him and his people's, uh, his tribes, uh, the Jabari, like story yeah. of like now we are, cause he's, he's been the voice of wisdom throughout this. And he's like exemplified the, like the message, like the nobility that, uh, T'Challa brought to the mantle of Black Panther and to Wakanda as a new nation of part of the world. And it feels like it makes sense that moving forward, he'll be the person to lead Wakanda. It it does make sense for your head of state and your nation's protector to be two separate people. So there isn't (laughs) just all this pressure on a single person. When T'Challa became the Black Panther, his father was still king. It was a separated role. Yeah. And talking of M'Baku, he's gone through quite an arc of being the hothead Mm. in in the first movie to the wise person that um, Shuri goes to. 
And I found that really interesting, as well as in calling Okoye a bald-headed demon. (laughs) 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 Which is just... And like I said, we think we all love the bits of humour, but I love how he's kind of matured. And I think it's literally because he said, I promised your brother, Hmm. I'm going to, you're going to be someone to come to in times like this. So his character is more from really funny to still funny, but a lot wiser. Hmm. There's been a lot more growth um, Hmm. in his character. man. Fish man, the fish man. Also, I mean, uh, I, isn't he just the like his original character in the comics is the man ape and a villain a and ape. kind of blunt yep. and there's very little to him relative to this. This is a triumphant adaptation to the screen. Yes, it's he's yeah, a great... Baku is a great tri- adaptation of a character. He mm-hmm. he is like a nothing of a. He's just like uh, I. Th- I remember in at least the and uh, uh, the Avengers cartoon, he's mm. the one who kills uh, T'Chaka, or with Claw's help, and yeah. takes over Wakanda. And he's, he's a very shallow character. Yeah. So he's a villain of the week, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But that's taken the villain of the week and made him really, really good at adaptation. So that's great. And a huge part of that is, and I, I absolutely love it when this happens within big long. Uh, franchise setups like the MCU because it it implies a level of organicness to it that you wouldn't otherwise expect when they cast such a superb actor that they can take this small part they've been given and adapt it and grow it with themselves as sort of at, at the core of it. I love when that happens. Yeah, There was a very small thing towards... As, as we're going through Act 3, where when Shuri and M'Baku are having that conversation alone and he's like, okay, what are we going to do here? And Shuri makes her intentions very clear that this, this is what we're going to do and you're going to help me do it. And as opposed to all of his previous, uh, you know, fire starting and challenging of authority, he just sits there on his throne and gives a small grunt as if, okay, we've had a, a dominance challenge here, and I accede your superior authority. Mm. But uh, following up on something Aquila said a moment ago, the the growth of M'Baku as a character, where he he goes to her during Ramonda's funeral and says that he promised her brother that uh, he would offer her uh, guidance, uh, counsel, and uh, protection. That implies to me that while Shuri was doing her best in order to save her brother's life, that M'Baku might have been one of those people that was there at T'Challa's bedside as he was dying, and that bes- that speaks to a level of trust in him, even after the complicated situation where he was in Black Panther. I went back and forth on how M'Baku was depicted throughout both movies. And I think that there is definitely a, again, I, I don't, I don't feel equipped to speak about this, but there is something in the slight shift between Black Panther and Wakanda forever in terms of how, in terms of M'Baku's depiction of masculinity, because he is one of the few representatives of that in this new movie. And so that means he's kind of carrying a big weight on his shoulders. And 
particularly when he's like, oh, he's surrounded by um, all these Jabari men and, you know, commenting on the uh, the actions of Ramonda, which, you know, not he has a point, you know, in his cutting words, but also as he's leading his people into that final battle. There's a Jabari warrior that's a woman in the background there. So we, I would like to know more about Jabari culture specifically, apart from the whole, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm challenging you for the throne, and I'm a fierce traditionalist and don't like all of these new ways that all of the other tribes are behind. I, I, I want to know more about what's going on behind the scenes there. Aneka, this is a person that I feel that Michaela Cole's character, she needed more screen time. Yeah. And I wonder if it was there and it was cut out because there is a relationship between her and I respect the door. I, I wanted to be Adora Milaje, but doesn't have the same rigidity to tradition as Okoye does. And at the same time, she is clearly in a relationship with Io, the Dora Milaje that's been in the background forever now mm. and who doesn't speak much in this movie either. I, I, I like, okay, yes, two women in a relationship. Great. Can you do more with that? No. <laughs> Was that Disney meddling? Maybe. I don't know. But I, I, I really liked Aneka's energy and I wish we had seen more of it. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah I agree. She's, she's such a good actress that I do hope that in the future... She gets more opportunities as a result of being in Wakanda forever, but also that if she's going to stay in this universe, that they do more with her. There is a deleted scene where uh, where Annika uh, quits Dora. There's like a whole scene where uh, after being fired, Okoye tries to go to rescue Shuri and the, the Dora stopper, and Annika ends up quitting because of it. Mm. Okay, that makes that one scene where... Okoye asks Aneka to join her in being one of the Midnight Angels. That that suddenly makes more sense now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I will say going with this movie, I wasn't uh, expecting to get so much rep for places that I live. <laughs> with uh, both Alexandria and Boston showing up. I have fact the, the whole big climactic battle where they, uh, the Talakans come to try to take Riri happens on i know exactly what bridge in boston that happens on that's that's the harvard bridge across the river charles which i'm not sure is deep enough to allow orca whales but okay <laughs> probably <laughs> not but we'll give him a pass uh oh. honestly i know it doesn't feel like a mistake that uh, this happens and that we have a bunch of uh, fish people coming out of the water in boston i don't know that feels like a reference to something <laughs> <laughs> also the music in this movie. Like, already yes. Ludwig Göransson did an enormous job for the first one, and obviously he, he, he came back and he brought his A game. I don't know if he has less than an A game. Yeah. He has an S tier game. But mm. <laughs> one yeah. of the ones that stood out the most to me um, was uh, where Shuri is in the process of like preparing to take on Talokan. Uh, and is successfully creating the new version of the heart-shaped herb. There is this song. Yeah, I need a montage. 
Yeah. <laughs> this, this is the montage, but there is a song called Alone um, that was written by uh, Baba Mall and Ludwig Gorenson, but is voiced by uh, someone who I need to look up now. Uh, some- the Boys. Burnaboy, yes, exactly. Massive Afrobeats artist. Yes, man. Yeah. In that case, yes, I want to learn more. But I I was listening to that play and, like, trying to put it in context with everything else that's going on, especially because this music, where someone is speaking about their aloneness, and we see her working side by side with Riri in order to, like, figure out how to deal with Namor and you know uh she's building her armor and everything like that but it obviously regardless of whether she is physically alone or not she is still very much emotionally alone because she is still carrying around this weight and this keeping like she she may be letting Riri a little bit in on the technological side, but not on the emotional side. As she says at one point during the second funeral scene, the last person that knew my heart is gone. My heart died with Ramonda. We don't we don't see a repudiation of that, a healing of that until that final scene. So um, she is alone. Yes, but also the, the score is brilliant. And it shapes the movie because in the first Black Panther, it's all about kind of hope and pushing through and still being hopeful. This whole movie is about uncertainty and grief. And the score kind of, even Shuri's main theme is very... It's darker, it's there's more, more technological. And there's a, this kind of deep... I would say kind of trap feeling, which is kind of deliberate because this is not a Black Panther that's been lined up and groomed for for their role. This is a Black Panther that's been thrown in in a time of crisis personally, nationally, and she's super angry. And then of course, all the other things that show in the suit as well. So it shows that and also, here's a little tidbit before we get into the final act. In when when we head to Wakanda the first time round, it's in the middle of the day. When we head to the Wakanda the second time around, when it's Queen Raimonda coming back, the sun's setting. So it shows that it's a completely different vibe of what T'Challa brought was a lot of hope, even though there was struggle, but it was just unsettled. In, in this one so lots of symbolism the score is just I'm trying to think of a score that Louis Garanson has been really bad at and I think every time I look at it it's Community um, Oppenheimer Fruitvale uh, Station Creed Fruitvale Station Creed even um, what's the um, Disney Mandalorian movie? Yeah, Mandalorian and he did um, like a kind of a uh, K-pop soundtrack I can't remember what the movie's called um, Turning Red. Yeah. Um, he, oh. he, he did that as well. So he's he's an all-rounder. I think we're going to be talking about him for at least another 20 years because he hasn't really written anything bad. I'm struggling to think of anything. He's like, yeah. uh, but yeah, he's awesome. Yeah. I particularly liked the uh, the new instrumentation he introduced. I've mentioned before that bringing in different instruments to exemplify new characters, or in this case, new cultures, for Tekel Khan and uh, Namor, the, this kind of 
like maracas start for, uh, first. These kind of ch- 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 and then you've got these kind of like I don't even know the blah, 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 blah sound to it, and it's, a little bit of choral stuff as well. It's all um, basically indigenous um, Mayan culture instrumentation. Yeah. So death whistles rattles yeah. drums and this kind of haunting choral sounds uh, yeah, the, the the mermaid song that they uh, the uh that causes song, people yeah. to experience the happening that <laughs> was very creepy i'm glad they kept it for just a couple of scenes because yeah. that could that could have over the pudding much like the movie the happening that particular quality to the drums that you mentioned by the way represent it or they replicate it visually with the um okay it's the best way to describe this so the force field around wakanda when the ship comes to the gate at one point these drawers come out from the control panel within the ship and they're full of water and the pilots start drumming and it's it's a rhythm it's a there's a musicality to it but they're playing the password to resonate with the gate to open the gate so that that particular quality of the drums that you mentioned sounds like drums that are being played through water yeah that was really clever actually Mm. but yeah i do love that i do like really everything they did with with telecon like it's telecon is actually something from aztec myths it is the 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 land of Taloc, who is the god of rain, yes. and is essentially the the Aztec equivalent of Chalk, who gets mentioned in the movie as the because because they're mostly they're pretty much Mayans, uh, and so they, their main god, like like how Wakanda has passed, is Chalk, who is the god of rain, and Taloc is like his Aztec equivalent. Like I love what the creativity of it. I do find it funny watching the behind the scenes stuff. That they, yeah, we we gave them all of this. You know, we decided to go with Mesoamerican culture for their and and they leave out. And we did that because everyone knows who Aquaman is, and he already has Atlantis. Mm-hmm. I'm curious if anyone knows. Um, I didn't watch any of the behind the scenes stuff, um, and I don't know enough about uh, the culture that it comes from which is foolish considering how big into mythology I am, but the Talakan greeting where they, where they hold up their hands, it's ritualistic, but it reminds me of nothing other than like symbolizing the gaping maw of a sea predator. Yeah. Does, does anyone know if it, if that has a more benign meaning or did anyone else feel like that? Okay, so the the hand thing that people do to salute um, Nemor was always kind of written in there. I was a little disappointed at the fact that towards the beginning of when I was working with them, there was a sense that like all of the different little like communities within their culture had their own specific and unique salute to Nemor. And that idea kind of got done away with as the production went on to to just be the the one where you see the two open palms, which I think is kind of unfortunate because everybody I've seen this movie with was like, why is everyone doing the Hadouken symbol? To <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's like, what it looks what? like, the Kamehameha wave. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's very They're clear. Like, why are they doing that? It's an oyster. It's very clear. They wanted to recreate the... 
Black Panther film where each tribe had their own greeting and like element to them, but we did have time. <laughs> that sounds like a I lot just, of work. <laughs> I, I really wish they had kept that because yeah, that everybody been... sort of came up with their own little thing that they did, but then they just kind of I said, no, everybody just do the the two open palms. They just, yeah. they just don't spend enough time in Talak to warrant <laughs> that amount of world building. Yeah. Shuri's comment about being given the skills to save my brother and I couldn't. By her ancestors. Yeah. It, it, it resonated back to me about that iconic moment from Richard Donner's Superman. Mm. Um, because, and this is something that I've been thinking about in regards to uh, my own media coverage work recently, about power isn't always superpower. Reflecting on, like, say, No Way Home, for example, yes, uh, Peter has, you know, the spider powers and the ability to fight, you know, supervillains as a result of that, but the power he uses in that movie is just his brain in terms of, like, no, I can solve this problem without violence. I can heal all of my enemies and make them my allies instead. I can, I can help them you know, resituate, and this feels very much like a situation which could have at some point been solved with power that is not fighting, uh, and I guess eventually is, but the, the fighting sort of has to happen first. She has to work out her own rage against Namor before she can find peace. But the thing is, is that the, the the power of diplomacy, the power of empathy, that's not her strength. Um, she has to find that by reconnecting with her mother. Now, okay, I guess we, this feels like we're, we're dipping into that final thing, so maybe we should just move on and do that. So Nakia and Toussaint or T'Challa the second. I was not expecting this, even though they gave us all the clues. A little part of me was was thinking that's weirdly enterprising of Marvel Studios so that they can continue using T'Challa as the Black Panther in their comics moving forwards. But at the same time, it's a kind of a beautiful life goes on moment that is impossible to deny its its bittersweetness. It feels it feels very much like a tribute more than yeah. anything else. In my own head, I've obviously got theories of the future, but I won't go through them. But it means we could ha- potentially have, whenever that's going to be, we will have a different version of T'Challa, which I'm excited about. But I don't know when it's going to be especially with everything up in the air, but it's bittersweet. I did have a bit of a cry when I when it happened, <laughs> when I saw it the first time. After all this pain, after all this grief, that there is hope for the future. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And they, they do actually foreshadow it, because on the second watch through, I realized uh, Toussaint is the kid that leads Ramonda to Nakia and the 
the school. Nice. When she first mm. gets that, that, that's yeah. Him. Also, I, uh, I kind of noticed that the second time I watched it too. I was like, oh, that's uh, a nice little touch. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Also, Tucson is the name of the uh, the leader of the rebellion that that freed Haiti from from French rule. Yeah, that's actually. Yeah. I think she mentions that too. That she she comments very important, on it. Yeah. yeah, it's an important name in Haitian culture, but. It's also a clever way to disguise who he really is. Mm, the whole thing about her going to Haiti is she went back to the first place that broke out of colonial rule. And I, I like that they brought in Haiti culture and like that as a setting for this. And that was like the location of the final like message of hope. There's always been uh, a deep connection that Kugler, I think, is doing with... Mm-hmm. Pan-Africanism and that sort of thing to begin with because I don't remember if this was in the first movie but specifically in Wakanda Forever uh, Ramonda uh, refers to herself as daughter of Lumumba which is a reference to a famous Congolese leader mm-hmm. I like how essentially he's done the thing that his uncle did like he lived outside of Wakanda saw what the real world was like so it's sort of, it's also like a a read of Killmonger's background, if if that. <laughs> yeah, if you kind understand of. of oh, I was kind of thinking like, that too. With like, I'm, oh. I'm going to raise my child outside of Wakanda, so he knows what the rest of the world is. Nice, yeah. but also he's being raised in an environment with love <laughs> and plenty nurturing. in the sense that there's yeah there's nurturing there's sustainability mm-hmm. he's being taught the history and the name he's been given makes him a part of that history but mm. with a completely different perspective on it that eric had yeah it's and he not doesn't have isol- the weight of duty yeah yes and it's not isolationist it's not he's not cut off from the rest of the world he's part of the larger world but will also have a connection to wakanda he's not going to be cut off in one direction or the other. But that that idea that the whole film is about processing grief and yeah. the, the end coda is that what softens death is new life, that after death comes life, not necessarily just more death and more destruction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think like you could almost see this entire film as just one big tribute not just to the character of Black Panther but to the person Chadwick Boseman like the whole film is just is is just the process of everybody grieving him as an individual but also like stands as a way to honor his memory there's a piece that is a part of the soundtrack that plays during Shuri's burning of her garments that is just called T'Challa. And I used it when I clumsily uh, grieved for the man myself during a Behind the White Scarves episode. It's beautiful and it's heartrending and like this movie begins with tears and it ends with tears, but they're necessary for us for Kugler, for everyone involved, for Shuri. (sighs) 
I've just realised the importance of Martin Freeman in this, and if editing him out will upset the Kugler-Ross stages that we have to go through. I'm so sorry. <laughs> right, okay, on that bombshell, folks. Good night, everybody. <laughs> Taking yeah, no your kidding, right? <laughs> I dropped it too many times. Okay. <laughs> Uh, we will end on that exact piece of music, Greg. Thank you very much for that as a recommend. Before we go, uh, thank you to all of our guests for making this sad episode so special. I knew I was not going to be able to do this without a lot of help. And you folks have just come through. Thank you very, very much. You have also, I believe, given me and maybe a bunch of other people... Uh, some things to think about regarding perspective on what happens within the movie and the meta of the film. So before we go, uh, please do talk about what the listeners should check out or things that you've taken part in that you would like to promote. So I'll start with uh, Greg. I have a very small fan base in comparison to you, Alex, but... As people may be aware, I do a podcast with my compatriot, Dr. Toby Skeels Jungius, uh, called Through the Window, where I talk about the New Century Multiverse, Alex's collection of stories that are ongoing and very emotionally affecting. Uh, we just had our News of the Century on his latest book, Castle of the Moon. That much is clear now. That much is clear that the bastard had a plan this entire time. Yes, Alex, I am going to spend the entire duration of the session cursing you out and praising you at the same time. Deal with it. That's just how I'm rolling. By the way, I, am I blowing out the mic? I feel like I'm blowing out the mic. But in addition to that, thanks to prompts from other place in the School of Movies community, We've started to cover things that are not New Century in a sideshow called Beyond the Window. I have just put out the first episode of a deep dive into Insomniac's incredible game, Marvel Spider-Man 2, which we are informally referring to as Spider-Man Proving Grounds. I have a lot of fun this for a lot of different Peters, you know, like that's something that the Spider-Verse shows us is that there are a lot of uh, characters who are still called Peter, but they all feel very different. Crazy. I think my favorite one was always Spectacular Spider-Man, yeah. Peter. Great series, definitely can't recommend that one enough. And No Way Home does a very good job of showing three versions of telling the story of Peter Parker and making all three of them feel like their own people. They can relate to one another, but there are differences to their experiences. As we've talked about with memory and Castle of the Moon, if your memories and experiences are different, that does make you a different person, even if the threads of the multiverse and of these storytellings are saying that this is the same Spider-Man. It's like, no, they're their own people. And so, which is my favorite Miles? I like them both. I hope that I get to see even more Miles Morales yeah. that I really like. Absolutely. Yeah. I have not gotten this emotional about something apart from New Century. I got very emotional during the three plus hours Toby and I recorded on this. I'm very much looking forward to sharing it with all of you. 
and Jerome. Uh, you can find me over at Game Burst. We do a new show that comes out every Sunday. So, uh, yeah, check me out over there. Chris? Uh, so, I don't have much going on. Uh, the only place you can really find me is on here whenever Alex makes the mistake of letting me on this show. Normally, I will mention my friend uh, Doc Hobbs' uh, podcast, What the Shell. Last time I was on a show, he had sadly ended it. But he's back. And so if you want to learn more about hacking and how computers control your life, listen to What the Shell. What Incredible the podcast. Yeah. Akila. I think I'm one of the only people here doesn't have anything to promote. <laughs> you could just say something that's good. But yeah, um, keep some keep an eye out because I'm going to be doing something podcasty in in 2024. Oh, no idea what that is, but that's going to be something I want to do because I have a mentor with the proverbial boot waiting for me to do something. So that's going to happen next year. Mm. And Maya. Hey guys. Um, so if you want to see some of the work that I've been in, you can watch Wakanda forever on Disney plus, and you can also check out, I can finally talk about blue beetle. I was one of the doubles on that movie and it has recently dropped on HBO. Criminally underseen this year. Yeah. Um, it's pretty good. If I do say so myself, that was kind of a surprise, but yeah, blue beetle is now on max available to stream. If you, if you have access to that, and as always, uh, check out the conclusion of Doom Patrol Season 4. This holiday season in the School of Movies community, we did what we always do. We collectively gave to those in need. It's the time of year when you can hunt bargains in the charity sector. And Name Chaibiti found Covenant House, who offer shelter and support for the abused and the homeless, particularly the young and those who have been trafficked. And this is across six countries. They seek to empower the disenfranchised to overcome adversity today and in the future, and to give vulnerable people who badly need it that crucial time to heal. We also checked up on them to see if, as with too many charities, depressingly, there were conditions that had to be met, specifically religious conditions, in order to qualify for aid. But it seems this is unconditional, something we can really get behind. Covenant House's doors are open across 34 cities in America and until midnight on New Year's Eve of 2023, they are offering to match their donators with a five times multiplier. That way, your 10 bucks becomes 50 or your 50 bucks becomes 250. And if enough listeners donated, a thousand would become 5,000. But there's no big pot, there's no coordination with us required. The link is in the show notes. You just go along there yourself and donate. And for the folks listening long after launch day on this one, I would assume they will still gladly welcome any donations. Sharon and I dedicated hours to the memory of Joel Robinson, one of the longest listeners to our show, whose life was tragically cut short in 2021. He was a military medic, a healer, and he believed in us, so we believe in him. School of Movies will be back in 2024 with maybe the best film of the year, Across the Spider-Verse.
Oh, yes. Yes. Until mm-hmm. then. I thought you were going to say Barbie. <laughs> <laughs> we will definitely be doing Barbie at some point in the future, along with Dungeons and Dragons Honor Among Thieves, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem, Nimona, The Marvels, Blue Beetle, Puss in Boots The Last Wish, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, and Marcel the Shell with Shoes On. Until then, I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And Wakanda Wakanda forever. Forever. Cause everything dies, nobody know why What I go do, what you go do When you're feeling like you're falling And you can't find nothing to hold on to
reality No require visa I have been very quietly dying I need you to remind me why Give me the strength to keep fighting Cause I know it Trust anybody They make a no Nobody done it Yeah. 